Buenas. So we have about 45 minutes, and then the staff, I think the kitchen staff and the front desk, everybody will be coming here for them to do a little ceremony. And so we'll, we have just about 45 minutes right now. And I think the time will be very well spent since we are now clearly in the summing up phase to go to a summing up by Dujum Lingba in this text, the Sharp Vajra of Conscious Awareness Tantra. It's the very conclusion of just phase one. So there are seven phases, and when you complete phase seven, you've achieved rainbow body. So then you get a big congratulations and a hug <laughs> if somebody can find you to, to hug you. I'm not quite sure whether they could. Um, but this is just phase one, and you recall phase one, you may recall, is taking the impure mind as the path, so settling the mind in its natural state. So he gives a marvelously clear account of this, both in his root text and then there's a commentary by one of his disciples, which also is very, very helpful. And so I wanted just to go to the end of that section of phase one, and the next one then moving right into Vipassana. Right? So two parts here, not a lot, but I found it very helpful, and I hope you will as well. So, he's given the instructions. The instructions are, are complete. Uh, first, really identifying nature of mind. This, what, what is this mind that you're taking as the path? So, conventional nature. And then, the method, the shamatha method, for settling the mind in its natural state. Shamatha dissolving into the substrate consciousness. So, now he's, he's completed it. He's given the whole instruction. But he says, okay, now, you're, you can imagine that you know, he's, he's sending his disciples off to their caves, or meditation huts, or what have you giving them some parting advice. And so this is parting advice from Dujum Lingba. And the first point, just of two, is how never to be separated from the experience of the practical instructions. So this came up in at least one written note. You'll be heading back, many of you will be heading back home, heading back to a socially, I think it's very accurate to say, socially engaged, active way of life, which can be very, very meaningful. But many of you may be, how do you say, engaging a lot with people, who have no interest in dharma, don't know what eudaimonia means, and are not meditating, in which case, how can you maintain the inspiration, the enthusiasm, the commitment to practice, which I think you really, have, all of you have shown so wonderfully here during these eight weeks. So how never to be separated from the experience of the practical instructions. The root text by Dujum Lingwa, this is again a mind dharma, so he just simply wrote it down, he received it uh, directly from Samantabhadra. He says, those who have become distant from sublime spiritual friends should cherish the five topics as the sublimity of the path. Okay. We're about all to disperse. Many of us will be distant from sublime spiritual friends. And so cherish what five topics? Well, you might be able to recall. The first one is that preliminary, the access to taking the mind as a path, and as are you able to distinguish between the stillness of your awareness the movements of the mind. Remember that? That's the opening of the door. And then there are four modes of mindfulness. Remember? What's the first one? Single point of mindfulness. What's the second one? What's the second one? When you really kind of get into the flow, it becomes more and more effort, effortless. <laughs> Somebody besides Nicola, he knows all the answers. Somebody over here in the left hemisphere. Nobody knows. Be good. What's that? What's that? Yeah, but that's not the name of it. What's the name of the mindfulness? The first one was single-pointed. And then, 
Could you remember this? It's not a very, it's not a very long list. What is it, Nicola? Manifest mindfulness. Right? Manifest mindfulness. Now you're in the flow. And so you're sustaining that simultaneity of the stillness of your awareness while aware of the movements of the mind. But it's getting more and more effortless. Stage four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. It's covering a lot of territory there with that second form of mindfulness. You achieve stage nine, and then you kind of drop off the cliff. And Tanya, what's the third type of mindfulness? Absence of mindfulness. Yeah. She's very few words, but she always gets it right. <laughs> Absence of mindfulness, exactly right. And you remember what that is. I'm sure you do. And then once you've come out of that little, that little how do you say, very temporary coma, not to. What do you do when you come out of your temporary coma? <laughs> I think it's, is that dark humor or black humor? I'm not quite sure which. But she knows. What is it, Elizabeth? Fourth type of mindfulness. Naturally luminous, yes. The natural luminosity of subsequent consciousness itself. So he says, cherish those. Those are the five points. First, the entry into it. Simply being able to distinguish to experience, to know what it's like not to be always falling into cognitive fusion with all the rubbish, and sometimes not so much rubbish, that arises in the mind. To have that stillness and aware of the movements of the mind and the distinction between the two. In other words, awareness and mind are not the same, right? And then the four modes of mindfulness. He said you should cherish the five topics as the sublimity of the path. Okay, now here's your essence, okay? If you strive too hard, the root text continues, if you strive too hard in practicing single-pointedness, the power of your mind will decline. And with stagnant mindfulness, so there's one way. So he's, this is very, very dense. This is almost like on a microdisc or on one of those little tiny, you know, so dense, so high compact. So if you strive too hard, the power of your mind, you're going you're gonna to get exhausted. That's what I did on my first long shamatha retreat. I was so enthusiastic, only 30 years old, had this only Dalai Lama as my teacher, my lama, living in a meditation hut of a, of a yogi who'd been there for 20 years, marvelous yogis, had blessings, not to mention all of the wonderful neighbors I had about, oh, bed bugs and fleas and rats and mice and mosquitoes. It was, yeah, a lot of, it was very, quite wonderful. Uh, but then what did I do? Of course, just strove so hard, tried so hard. I just burnt myself out. So then, power of your mind declines. It does. It does. On the other hand, with stagnant mindfulness, although your body remains, although your body is human, your mind will become becomes that of an animal. It becomes dull. Some people stray into delirium, so inseparably devote yourself to a spiritual friend. So that's it. That's how to Never to be separated from the spirit experience of the practical instructions. Don't fall to extremes. Now the commentary, very helpful. And it's not long. Those who have become distant from sublime spiritual friends who reveal the path. That's what a sub sublime spiritual friend is. One who shows you a path. Doesn't he just give you a whole bunch of practices? Anybody can do that. Frankly, I mean really. Anybody can tell you about practice. But actually reveal a path, that's a bit rare. So those who, who have become distant from sublime spiritual friends who reveal the path may not know how to distinguish between what is and is not the path. Really important point. Or how to cut through their uncertainties and false assumptions. So the previously presented five topics on stillness and movement and the four kinds of mindfulness are the sublimity of the path. 
you should know that they are indispensable when first venturing into practice. Boy, Dujjalingu is not mincing his words here. There's so many things you can practice, but he said this is indispensable when you're first venturing into practice. He doesn't say do 100,000 prostrations or study Lamrim until your brains fall out or, or do a whole bunch of sadhanas or get a whole bunch of empowerments or get teachings that just numb your mind. He said the first thing is, hey, you might want to get a mind that works. So it's a, a vessel for everything else. might be a good idea. This is what he says. So interesting. You should know that they are indispensable when first venturing into practice, and you must cherish that knowledge by gaining the firm certainty of proper understanding. So it's not only enough to practice correctly, you need to know you're practicing correctly. Some regard the practice that is merely initial, taking the impure mind as the path. Some regard this as being the ultimate nature of existence and strive only in the practice of single-pointedness. If they do, they'll probably call it vipassana or mahamudra or dzogchen, or something really exalted. You said, hey, wait a minute, this is phase one. This is shamatha, right? Or without knowing how to apply the appropriate degree of effort in accordance with the state of their own mind streams, like blocking a water canal, they regard the mere single-pointed awareness of stopping thoughts as the highest view and meditation. So once again, they'll think within their system, whether it's satori, whether it's Dzogchen, Mahamudra, whether it's stage of completion, whatever it is, they'll think this is it. This is it. This is ultimate. Then if they strive much too hard in the practice, the functionings of the channels and elements, that is the nadis and the various elements of the body, for some people who are dominant in the water element or earth element, this causes the analytical power of their minds to decline. Their awareness then becomes stagnant, and though their, bo their body is human, their mind becomes that of an animal by becoming stupid and turgid. With this in mind, Banju Gosha Sakyapenjin, Sakyapenjin, the great master from the Sakya tradition, wrote, striving only in meditation without study is a way to achieve rebirth as an animal. So, you can either go to a whole bunch of orgies, that would do it, or you can meditate without study, and that would do it. So, actually, same result, but they're very different methods. One sounds actually a lot more fun. Some people, especially in Phuket, I mean, I've never been to a Phuketian orgy, but I think they must be good. There's people come all over the world here for that. And we somehow missed out. You've been here for eight weeks and not even one orgy that you told me about. <laughs> Some people who are dominant in the fire element or earth element stray off the path as their minds become muddled due to delirium, fainting, and so on. So cut through your false assumptions by inseparably devoting yourself to a sublime spiritual friend. <laughs> At least it, it tickled somebody's funny bone. <laughs> Shall I read that one again? Oh, yeah. Some people who are dominant in the fire element, uh, and they tend to be either redheads or blondes, by the way, or earth element, stray off the path as their minds become muddled due to delirium, fainting, and so on. These are the people who need motorcycle helmets when they sit in meditation. <laughs> How could he have known that?
People listening by podcast, this is a private joke. <laughs> so you just have to live with that. So cut through your false assumptions by inseparably devoting yourself to a sublime spiritual friend who knows how to teach the essential points of this path correctly. The next point's very interesting, though. Even if you lack such good fortune, I mean, such spiritual friends are rare, after all, even in Tibet, let alone in this world we're living in. Even if you lack such good fortune, it is indispensable that you, without falling into indolence or laziness, properly seek out and familiarize yourself with the practical instructions of the Vidyadharas of the past who have achieved cities by way of this path. I find that very interesting. It reminds me of the, some of the kind of quintessential advice from my primary yoga teacher, B.K.S. Iyengar, with whom I trained quite intensively for two months. Um, and he's rather, rather, rather not, he's very, very confident. He knows, he knows his business very well. He's also very, very confident. And his, his, one of his little aphorisms was, when it comes to yoga, better have a good book than a bad teacher. I think there's something to be said to that. I mean, it's better to have a good teacher and a good book. But if you can have a teacher who doesn't know what he or she is talking about, or you have a good book, then you probably do better with a good book. And I think it's exactly what Dujun Lingbo, or the, or the commentator, is saying here. Better than following some teacher who's just making up stuff or doesn't really have a clue or doesn't really know what the path is and what is and is not a path, uh, then rather than following such a person, why not really seek out and familiarize yourself with the practical instructions, that's meditation instructions, of the Vidyadharas, people who have actually gained direct realization of Rigpa. Because this text is all about Dzogchen. Why not seek out their teachings? Even if it's you know, one, two, five, ten, fifteen generations removed, at least you know you're tapping into something totally authentic that has worked. And so are these Vidyadharas of, Vidyadharas of the past who have achieved cities by way of this path. So they follow this, and it's manifested the benefit. Evident, visible, Empirical. I find that very powerful, actually. So that's the end of his instructions on how never to be separated from the experience of the practical instructions. At this point, I can mention, happy to mention, that this text, I mean, I think I, I do actually, it's, it's only 10 pages, but the commentary is 100 pages, and I've translated them both. Um, it's the very essence, I think, of all of his mind treasures on Dzogchen. Um, I would just have to say, it just absolutely speaks to me at the deepest level. Uh, and so I'm so utterly taken by this, by this text and the commentary. Uh, frankly, I really want to just practice that for the rest of my life. And other practices feeding, and I've cited so many other great masters from the past, but all feeding into this. That just, that does, this is just personal. I'm not saying this is true for every, anybody else. It is true for me. And so because of my, mm, how do you say, profound reverence, way beyond respect, for this sharp bhatra of Conscious Awareness Tantra and its commentary, I am now teaching it more and more frequently. And I teach it just in small pieces. So I, twice now, once in Santa Barbara and once in the Holy Isle in Scotland, off the west coast of Scotland, I've taught just phase one. And so, and the whole commentary, and the commentary, and this, anybody can listen to it. You don't need empowerment, initiation. You don't need to be Buddhist. Um, so if anybody's interested, people listening by podcast or people here, if anybody's interested in listening to the the oral commentary, and then you would get the text as well, uh, phase one, then you can either write to info at sbinstitute.com, so write to Santa Barbara Institute, they sell it, or our dear friend who's right here, Elizabeth West, at em, 
west1944 at gmail.com. Okay? It's emwest1944 at gmail.com. She has a beautiful edition, very, very handsomely uh, produced from the oral commentary I gave this past summer. I think it was June in the whole, on the Holy Isle. It was really quite a, a wonderful retreat, uh, sheer delight for me. The place, the people, everything. It was like all the perfections coming together at one time. And so, and then in terms of phase two and three, I've taught that once thus far. That was in Santa Barbara, so the, the um, commentary from that can be also gotten from Santa Barbara. I haven't taught it elsewhere yet. And then I'll be teaching phase four this fall, November, that is next month in November, uh, in Santa Barbara, and the oral commentary from that will be also available, together with the text in each case. So if you find any, anything remotely like my inspiration for this text, then you can follow it that way. Okay, so now we go to his final section in phase one. Bear in mind, six more phases to come. And this is the synthesis. In short, even if you strive diligently in this phase of these practices for a long time, this phase, phase one, shamatha, taking the mind as a path does not bring you even an iota closer to the paths of liberation and omniscience, and your life will certainly have been spent in vain. So understand this, you fortunate people. Okay? So as he said already, this is indispensable. Shall I, I quote that one again? Indispensable. You should know that they, those five topics, which is all in the phase one, settling the mind, you say, you should know that they are indispensable when first venturing into practice. And you must cherish that knowledge by gaining firm certainty and proper understanding. So on the one hand, venturing into this phase. Indispensable. But if you stay there, then you've wasted your whole life, right? If that's all you do, then you, you're, you've not even moved an inch to actually getting onto the freeway, getting onto the path. You've just gotten to the on-ramp, and then you turn off the engine and say, isn't it nice to be on the on-ramp? Well, that means you've not actually moved onto the freeway at all. You may as well have stayed at home or just wandered around in traffic. So he's making a very important, crucial point. It's, and again, nowhere contested in Buddhism that I've seen. Shamatha is indispensable, that is, in terms of classic sources and, re and, and masters. Shamatha is indispensable by itself. Uh, it's really not even on the path at all. It's the preliminary to the path. So here's the commentary. In short, these practices from shamatha to luminous cognizant consciousness and the substrate consciousness, as taught previously, constitute the phase of taking the aspects of the mind as the path. So, again, the, even the commentary is very, very dense. These practices from shamatha. Well, that's when you first just start practicing shamatha. And then as you're venturing into this practice of taking the impure mind as the path, more and more clearly along the path before you ever achieve shamatha, you simply will have a clearer and clearer sense. When they say that awareness is luminous and cognizant, what does that mean? And you'll know. Just like once you've tasted grapes, you know what grapes taste like, or anything else. Once you've tasted it, that's it. And then you can recognize it in the future. Right? And so that's it. You will know the taste of the, lumin the luminosity of awareness. You know exactly what that word refers to, which is not at all self-evident to people who have not done the meditation. They'll think luminous is what lights do, bright. And cognizant, what does that mean? You'll know exactly what that means. So there you are. You've entered shamatha, then along the path, you get a clear and clear sense of the luminous, cognizant nature of consciousness, namely the defining characteristics of consciousness. And then finally, when you have settled your mind into natural state, you realize substrate consciousness. And now you'll know exactly what that word refers to. You know, that's the substrate, this is the substrate consciousness. 
as taught previously, and that, that these practices constitute the phase of taking the aspects of the mind as the path. So once again, I emphasize, because I think it's really interesting, is that this is such a naturalistic approach. There are many authentic approaches to achieve shamatha, like focusing on a Buddha image or on a seed syllable, methods that are specifically Buddhist. A Christian might focus on a, an image of Jesus or one of the saints. Why not? Perfectly good. And all of those would be then religious ways of achieving shamatha. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Absolutely. But the way he's teaching here is taking something that's already part of your being and actually quite a core part of your being and taking that as your path. Right? So it's taking a central aspect of reality as your path to deeper reality. So I think, again, this lends itself to, how do you say, a real engagement with a scientific approach to studying the mind. But as long as, so now he's coming, summing up here, so that's shamatha, but as long as it, that is this phase of taking the mind as a path, as long as it is divorced from the vipassana of knowing the nature of existence, most specifically, of course, emptiness, realization of emptiness, shunyata, as long as your shamatha practice is divorced from the vipassana of knowing the nature of existence, this does not bring you even an iota closer to the path of liberation, from the suffering of mundane existence and the path of omniscience that liberates from the two extremes, the extremes of samsara and nirvana. Thus, even if you strive diligently in these practices for a long time, this does nothing more than perpetuate samsara. It takes you to a form realm, maybe a formless realm. The, the petrol that got you there gradually gets used up, the karma gets exhausted, and then you're just right back where you were before. No big deal. So understand how your life will certainly have been spent in vain. With these words, he offered compassionate advice to fortunate people who are following this path. So compassionate advice, here's the entrance, don't stay there, move on. Tremendous compassion. Now the very end, the final paragraph. However, whether or not people have identified pristine awareness within themselves, those who become muddled due to distraction and sloth, should first mount their discursive mind, conceptual mind, which is like a cripple, onto their breath, which is like a blind, wild stallion. So after all this talk within Dzogchen and na nature of mind and settling the mind and so forth, then he says, if you're still having problems here, what eat in, that is, whether or not people have identified pristine awareness. Bear in mind, people can get a pointing out instruction, some glimmering, some... <coughs> glimpse long before they've achieved shamatha. Right? And so you, so, but whether or not you've had some glimpse of rikpa, right? whether or not, if your mind still is relatively unserviceable, you keep on getting muddled, just kind of falling into, let alone laxity, just flat out dullness and distraction, and then just getting heavy with sloth, maybe losing some of your jazz, kind of getting, you know, losing inspiration and so forth. And what should you do? You take your discursive mind, this mind, this little chatterbox mind, which is like a cripple, and then you mount it. You can join it. You engage it with the breath. It goes back to mindfulness of breathing. How interesting. Discursive mind, which is like a cripple, and get the cripple onto the, basically, there's the metaphor. You take a cripple who can see, but legs don't work, and put the cripple up on the back of a blind, wild stallion. Sounds like an interesting combination. Okay, if it worked out well, the stallion's got all the muscle, 
to carry you from here to there. But of course, it's just going to be walking into things all the time. But if the cripple who can't walk but sees clearly is really takes the reins of the horse, then they both win. The cripple takes the stallion to green pastures and the stallion takes the cripple to the hospice. <laughs> or wherever be most beneficial. Right? So there it is. But it's, I find it fascinating, frankly, that he comes back to mindfulness of breathing. By tethering it, that is the discursive mind, with, med- with meditative experience and sustained attention so that they can meditate uninterruptedly. Eventually, all coarse and subtle obsessive thoughts will appear to be dispelled and uncontrived, primordially present consciousness will manifest. Uncontrived. That's a stem, that's a stem consciousness. Uncontrived. It's not male or female, Mexican or Brazilian. It's uncontrived. It's there, the naked, stripped-down version. right? Calls it uncontrived, primordially present. It's always there. It's always there. Sometimes implicit when you're in deep, deep sleep. Comatose, you fainted, you've just gotten dead, whatever. But it's always there. Through the bardo, through dreaming, through the waking state, primordially present, uncontrived, uncontrived, primordial present consciousness will manifest. I'm going to read that sentence again. By, medita- by tethering, so here again is the rope of mindfulness, by tethering it, the discursive mind, with meditative experience and sustained attention so that they can meditate uninterruptedly, eventually all coarse and, obs- coarse and subtle obsessive thoughts, we call it rumination, will appear to be dispelled. Okay? Finally, the mind calms down. The mind dissolves into the substrate consciousness and uncontrived, primordially present consciousness will manifest. So far, so good. When one alights upon the great non-meditation of pristine awareness, well, now we're going to be on shamatha. Okay? And bear in mind, Padmasambhava says, when you are resting in awareness of awareness, and you're doing that probing inwards, probing in, you may just break through right there. Without going out into Vipassana and other practices, you may go directly from really penetrating shamatha and just break right through the substrate consciousness into rikpa. Okay? There's a possibility. That's what he's referring to here. When one alights upon the great non-meditation, in other words, taking nothing as an object, no striving, no effort, just revealing that all which already is, when one alights upon the great non-meditation of pristine awareness, it is easy for the guru's introduction to pristine, to pristine awareness to strike home. So when you're there, maybe you're getting some glimmerings of it, just from your shamatha practice. It's kind of like shining through your substrate consciousness, so to speak. When you're that close... Then if you seek out a qualified Dzogchen master and that person gives you these pointing out instructions, he said, very easy for those teachings to strike home. Okay? And then really let awareness, pristine awareness, know pristine awareness. Given how very important it is for disciples not to stray onto false paths, this needs to be clearly taught as was implied in the preceding passage. The preceding passage on the phase one Sharp Vajra Tantra. This concludes the synthesis of this phase revealed in the Sharp Vajra of Conscious Awareness Tantra. And so there we are. That was his summary. So I think that's very, very relevant to all of us here as we're parting ways. Some of, some of us will be quite far from spiritual friends. And that's Dujum Lingba Zedai.
I don't know how that could be possibly topped. Okay? Between Kamachame's advice, that is, that is actually a Tisha by way of Kamachame yesterday, and then Dujalim, were both five, five, interesting. Five-fold practice of Matisha, these five aspects, but just on the first phase of the practice from Dujum Lingba. Quite extraordinary. So, uh, one of you asked about reading, possible reading. There are so many good books, many, 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 um, that I would just give a, t a tiny sampling of something that would be quite a smooth transition from what we have been doing here. That's all. That is, with the baseline among my books of the Genuine Happiness, Attention Revolution, the Four Immeasurables, Minding Closely. That was really... Those were the base for what we've done for the last eight weeks, right? Then moving on, I don't really know in terms of wanting a very streamlined path. I don't know any text I could I could more highly recommend than this sharp Tantra. Um, so there it is, and it will be hopefully published. I, I think maybe next year with a bit of luck, because um, now all of, as far as I know, all of his mind treasures on Dzogchen have been translated. He's translated all of them, and we've found a, a, a publisher. We just need to do the final polishing and printing. Uh, but beyond that, in terms of a very smooth transition, just to refer to some texts that I've, I have cited a number of times over these eight weeks. Uh, first of all, one I've not cited, but it's a marvelous book. Marvelous book. And it's the Holiness, His Holiness Dalai Lama's teachings that he gave about ten years ago in Ledapling in the south of France at, at Sogyarambuchi Center. Were you, were you there, Natu? Yeah. It was, there were 10,000 people. And I was, I was invited there by Sogyarambuchi, and so it was a tremendous privilege just to be there. And his, his holiness was teaching Dzogchen. And he taught a text uh, by Longchen, Longchen Rabchamba. Um, and this was very, very beautifully translated, edited uh, by, by, by a team of people. I was part of the team that actually translated the text that then we delivered to everybody who was receiving the teaching. So we were back in the cave, and there were about four or five of us translating the text, translating it really quickly, because we had to translate quickly because it would be taught, taught the very next day. So a small core group of us translated the text, and then another, another group translated His Holiness teachings. And these, these were published several years ago under the title, By His Holiness, A Mind in Comfort and Ease. So if you'd like to see a really smooth, eloquent, extremely well-informed, and very informative uh, presentation of Dzogchen from one of the, well, one of the great Galupa masters of the modern world, but also who knows, has a, such a deep understanding of Dzogchen, here it is as Holiness. And he shows, you know, just he contextualizes Dzogchen within the broader framework of Buddha Dharma in general, but of course with his, with his extremely strong Galupa background. So any of you coming from a Galupa background, if you have any kind of qualms, is this really compatible with the teaching you've heard thus far? Well, take it from his Holiness. That's a, it doesn't get much better than that. It's a marvelous book, really an outstanding book. So that would, I think, be for starters. And then this, this two-volume two set that I've translated with, uh, with my Lama Gyatrata, which is wonderful oral, co oral commentaries, uh, the first being A Spacious Path of Freedom, and the second, Naked Awareness. These are both on the union of Mahamudra and Dzogchen, A Spacious Path of Freedom and Naked Awareness. Beautiful set, really, so informative. Lays out the whole path, the whole path. Mahamudra, Dzogchen, even both phases of Dzogchen, even the Tutgel, which is not very often taught, uh, even that is included there. Uh, with some of these, you know, the, uh, the, the mapping onto the five paths, this wonderful concluding chapter that I cited yesterday. Really a beautiful text. Uh, very practical, all entirely oriented for practice. That's all that my Lama for Dzogchen Gyatru Rinpoche taught me. He never taught me any, um, what do you call them, more scholastic texts for people who really want to become scholars, I mean, accomplished scholars of Dzogchen. I'm totally not. 
He didn't teach me one text of that sort. And there are a lot of them. The Seven Treasures of, Jichang, uh, of um, Longshan and Rapchamba. If you really want to be a good scholar of Dzogchen, you should study all of them. I haven't studied any of them, except for this one little tiny one, his holiness taught. And so my lama, I think, knowing where I was in my practice and what I really yearned for, I didn't want to become a scholar. I had never had any aspiration to become a scholar of Dzogchen. I think it's a very noble thing to do. But I was starting with him at the age of 40, and I just wasn't ready to start another scholarly quest. So he just taught me practice, one practice text after another. Spaces, pastor freedom, naked awareness. And then a follow-up, and that's Natural Liberation by Padmasambhava. Beautiful text. Covers six bardos, six opportunities for achieving enlightenment. While you're dead, while you're dreaming, while you're awake, and so forth and so on. Uh, so six bardos, each of them presented as a launching pad for achieving an awakening. It's an extraordinary text, really one of the great classics. So that would be get you off to a good start. Hola, okay. so. So we have about 10 minutes um, before I think they're, they're gradually assembling over there. Uh, questions, we won't have much time tomorrow. I'm not quite sure. Well, maybe tomorrow morning for sure. Questions about the practice, anything still lingering? Okay, go to Danny. So a question about awareness of awareness. Good. And the kind of the term that you use about kind of um, forcefully withdrawing from the sensory appearance, sensory appearances. In the sense that now is the time to arouse. It's not just all relax, relax, relax. Sometimes there's a time for really paying attention, and this is straight from Padmas Baba. Now's the time for concentrating, focusing, arousing. But of course, you can always overdo it, and then you just, you know, deplete yourself. Go ahead. Right. But so that kind of aspect of, you know, forcefully withdrawing right into awareness. And in the meditation, you mentioned um, not to focus sort of inside your head. Or, or, you don't I, want I, to be I, focusing in a certain physical place. That's right. right. Like I've noticed when, when I'm trying to follow those instructions, the releasing out into space, I... I, I at least seem like I, I know what that means. Yeah. I feel like I can do it. I understand it. But then the withdrawing back in, I feel like I'm kind of contracting in towards the center and sort of like, you know, kind of in this direction. That's right. Back. Yeah, that's where you are. Right. And is, is that kind of correct and sort of like forcefully withdrawing and like kind of contracting in towards a center? Um, I'll put it this way. As I've, I've said, as I've, it's a parallel issue. And that is when you withdraw your interest from everything else while maintaining, a, with, while maintaining clarity of awareness, but when you withdraw your awareness from everything else, again, like the sensory deprivation tank, you just had three cappuccinos, so you're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, wide awake, but now when you're put into a situation where there's just nothing that you can attend to at all, no objects at all, even with Merlin's magic wand and all your thoughts vanish, then the process of elimination leaves you with a kind of knowing that had to be already there, because you're not going to freshly get that by jumping into a sense of deprivation tank. And what is that awareness that's left when there's nothing else? That's awareness of awareness, which already was there, even when you're eating, eating hot dog. You know, there you're really focusing on the hot dog and all of that. And, but even when you're doing it, I'm, I'm just choosing a totally mundane activity, but it's still there at that time. So similarly, you're doing the practice right, when you simply 
to the best of your ability, withdraw your interest, the focus of your attention, from all appearances, from all appearances, interior and exterior. So you're not looking at thoughts, images, you're not attending to your feelings and emotions and memories and so forth. Just a withdrawal from all of that, as if somebody just put, picked you up with a pair of tweezers and put you right down in the center deprivation tank. Right? So if you, th this is what I'm saying, though. If, if you have a sense of withdrawing from what you are aware of and then what you're left over with at the end, that's fine. If, in the in, on the contrary, you said, okay, now I want to find my center, where's that? Okay, into the center, like you're, you know, you've got a rifle and you're about to shoot a target. Okay, I think it's my center. Let's go into the center. Then you're coming into something. Actually, you've got a target. And this is simply away from everything. Okay, subtle distinction. But that should be enough. Okay? One, one quick follow-up. So when... I feel like when I just disengage from sensory appearances and I kind of in a more restful state, mm -hmm. I do feel like, you know, noticing the awareness of awareness and kind of just resting there. Sure, sure. But then it's so specifically this kind of forceful or this active engagement to focus on that. It feels almost like I don't quite understand what that active engagement of focusing on it is. Just resting there. I can tell you. That makes I can sense. Tell you. Yeah. The, the problem, number one, it's not a problem for everybody. That's why Tsongkhapa could get away with just two phrases, you know, sheer luminosity, sheer cognizance, and then he stopped. For a person of the brilliance of Tsongkhapa, that's probably quite sufficient. I, I, don't know, I wonder whether he ever experienced mental dullness. Tsongkhapa and mental dullness in the same sentence just don't seem to belong together, you know? Uh, so I suspect that actually is quite sufficient for him. But for people who have more ordinary minds, the, the downside, the danger, of just saying, like, I'm just follow Tsongkhapa. I'm just going to sit here and be aware of being aware. You just fade out, you know. That is, it can just gradually, almost like a, like a light bulb starting at, at, at 100 watts and then going 99, 95, 80, 70. You could just kind of slip into a nice, quiet, nebulous space. It's really possible. Not necessary, but it could happen. Right? Since we're bringing some, such habituation of dullness and so forth already to anything we do. So to avoid that, to avoid that, then he's giving us this exercise. And once again, it's like working out in a gym. That is, you push up and then... <sighs> Actually, you're supposed to breathe out when you... But, you know, but there you are. Time when you have to give effort and then ah, back again. Like that. And then... And so this is, it's like that. And so, the people now preparing to come in soon. So without turning your head, keep your eyes this way. But can you hear them? Can you, can you hear whether they're coming or not? Now listen more carefully. It's just that. It's just that. You didn't have to grit, you didn't have to grit your teeth, you didn't have to frown, you didn't have to, I'm trying. It's just, you're giving more interest. Can you hear anything behind you? No? Listen again. Can you not hear that they're coming? I, I see one person walking. Can you not hear them? So it's that. You see how non-stressful it is, but you really are attending more closely. So that's it. That's it. It's attending more closely, greater interest, and then releasing... 
But the ambience of it is also important. We don't want to turn this into drudgery, into just hard labor. And so here's a nice metaphor. And let's, let's imagine you're in a large auditorium. Let's imagine Andres Segovia is still alive. And he's playing one of his last concerts. He's about to retire. Okay? This is all hypothetical. But he's such a grandmaster of the guitar, classical guitar. You know? And you're in a, in a large auditorium, 10,000 people listening. And they're not going to screw up his magnificent guitar with a microphone and having to put it through an electronic sound system. Otherwise, you just listen to a CD at home, right? So he starts, and perhaps he starts out with a, quite a vigorous piece. And so everybody can hear it quite easily. He's really, you know, got a lot of liveliness to it, like that, right? But after he's played that, then imagine he turns to some really very tender, very soft piece. Very soft. You can imagine the audience, when they're hearing his one where he's really almost thumping away. I mean, you can really hear it. They're kind of enjoying it. Oh, beautiful. But then when he comes to the next piece and it's really soft, you can imagine it's so beautiful that now is the time, oh, everybody, now really be quiet because you'll miss it. You hear the delicacy of the way his fingers touch the, the, the strings. and that You have to listen really closely. So sometimes of that quality, and frankly, yeah, so just leave it at that. Sometimes that quality, and then sometimes just whoosh, you know, that utter release. But then holding on like a child holding onto a kite with a string, just holding onto the string, doesn't need that much effort, you know. And so you're just holding onto the string of the awareness of awareness. So you're not just spacing out. In other words, you're not engaged and knowing and then spacing out and then engaged and knowing, spacing out. That's no way to achieve shamatha. But there is, nevertheless, a sense of release while holding the string, and then a concentration while being much more vivid, attent. And then the point of that is, again, when, you're, when you are doing that inversion, this is the point. This is where you have a whetstone to sharpen the knife of your mindfulness and introspection. And that is, as you're inverting, you are then, by that very act, overcoming any predisposition towards laxity and dullness. Right? As you're really inverting, but then, but knowing that it's set for such a short time, even if you have a, if you set the rhythm at 20 seconds in and 20 seconds out, that's a 20-second session. That's a short session. And many of you told me when practicing awareness of awareness, you can do it. But you say, but if I do it for very long, then, then I can't do it anymore. You know? That's because you're holding in mind, this is getting long. Right? But if you have just 20-second sessions, and you know that at the end of 20 seconds, then you're finished. And then it's, ha, ah, I'm finished oh, I think it's long enough. I'm ready for another session. And then, you know. So you have a whole bunch of short sessions in that way. Then every inversion overcomes laxity, increases vividness, or yeah, increases vividness in the sense of unveiling it. It's like you're coming closer to the light. Because, of course, the vividness is only coming from that which you're attending to. Awareness itself, by nature luminous. And then the release every time, then just overcoming more and more and more coarse, medium, subtle excitation as you're just doing a, a finer and finer cleaning, like a sweeping out, sweeping out, even the fine dust, sweeping, even the quiet murmuring of rumination, releasing, releasing. Okay? Yeah. The fine art of Shamatha Vedakasana. It's a beautiful art. And the payoff is very big. So good. Anything else? They're still not coming, by the way. <laughs> I did see somebody walking, but I think he was just walking. Yes, go ahead, Steph. Microphone coming.
Microphone need to be turned on. Not yet. Nope. That one I can hear work. Hello. Yo. Um, question I probably should have asked about eight weeks ago. Uh -huh. <laughs> what does hola so mean? Hola so, yeah. Now that's one of the great secrets, secret teachings that I give out only to people who've achieved, you know, eight weeks of retreat first. <laughs> it's very secret. And, and, and you, you, have you received tantric empowerment? Oh, okay. Well, Hola, so you ready? Because once I've said it, you won't forget it. It's one of those really you know, pointing out instruction kind of things. Hola, so doesn't mean anything at all. <laughs> but it is Tibetan. So it's hard to find a phrase in a language that is definitely part of that language, because hola, so is definitely Tibetan. It's not Hindi. Not Hindi or any other language that I know. It's definitely Tibetan. And it doesn't mean anything at all. Right? But it's Tibetan. So I don't know quite how you translate it in, into English, since it has no meaning. But it would be something like, um. <laughs> <laughs> or how about this? Well then, well then, how would you, what, is, what does that exactly mean? Well then, <coughs> well then, ladies and gentlemen, what exactly have I just said that imparted some information to you? Well then, as opposed to ill now? You know? So lasso is kind of like that. It's, uh, it comes up a lot, and it's just become part of my speech pattern, and I haven't seen anything to break it. And also, it sounds nice. Just, oh, lasso, oh, lasso. And very often, because I receive many teachings from lamas at the beginning, they often say, oh, lasso. And that like, lets everybody know, hey, we're about to begin, folks. You know, oh, lasso. So it's a nice way to begin. It's so smooth, almost like a mantra, oh, lasso. And then when you've finished, when you finish something, oh, lasso. So that's it. It's a way to begin and a way to end. Rightio? 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 Yes. <laughs> Rightio. Yeah. You say that in Australia. Rightio. Rightio. Yeah. Right. Okay, I have another translation. I have well then and then rightio. And you say at the beginning and at the end. It would sound, it would sound appropriate. Rightio? And then, and then if you're about to, um, uh, to give a talk or a performance or something, you say, rightio? Okay, rightio then. Jolly <laughs> good. We've got, we have the Aussie translation of hola so. <laughs> Thank you. I've learned something. Yeah, yeah. We, we say that in America also, but with not the kind of the, the flourish with which you said it. Rightio? Rightio? Rightio. I can't, but I can never, never in the Aussie. So there we are. You, you folks know. Very good. That's my answer. Yeah. Now you know. And now you won't forget. And anything else coming up? They're still not coming. It's now 5.17, but should be momentarily. Anything else coming up? We have a bit of, bit of time until they come. Yes, Francesca. I have a very short question. I had a lucid dream. And I saw a, a car crash on, uh, on a highway, yes. yes. Mm -hmm. And, uh, well, I was awake because I could see it, I, I, but I felt uh, a lot of pain for the people who were injured. Sure. And uh, so I said, well, 
am I not dreaming or I mean because I'm feeling an emotion sure of course uh, so I but I say I just you know I touched my arm I was awake <laughs> I was I, I could see the the dream and so I'm just asking you but can we still have emotions in uh, lucid dreaming oh you or know but you know you can number one you have already had that yeah. The answer is yes, of course. Oh, Number okay. one, the, the most common emotion, especially when you first become lucid, is euphoria. Uh -huh. It feels good. You feel happy. So yeah, lucid dreams and emotions, yeah. sure. It's like Nicole asking whether he can have any emotions when he practices suddenly in the mind in the natural state. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Okay, yes, sir. Definitely. <laughs> sure. But that just kind of raises a host of interesting questions. And that is, if you're very clearly lucid, and you see an automobile crash, insofar as you are lucid, you know this is a dream, then you know no one actually suffered. Because there's no one there. I mean, literally no one there. It's not that they just have conventional existence. But there's no one there. It's like... It's, it's like, it, yeah, it's like watching a cartoon or a special effects where everything you're seeing on the screen is completely computer-generated, right? And you're seeing then a computer-generated car crash. 3D, maybe 3D, high definition on the screen. And you see body parts falling, all, you know, flying in all directions and so forth. Um, I mean, it can be quite a gruesome image, but if you know that you're watching television or the movie, then you know that actually there's nobody there at all. So in that way, then the emotions that arise would be different. Could one cultivate compassion? Because I thought that's where you were going. Could you cultivate compassion if you witness a tragedy like a car crash? Could you, while you're lucid, could you cultivate compassion as you witness a car crash, knowing that in fact there's no one there and no one suffering at all? Could you? What do you think, Will? Could you, in a lucid dream, witnessing some, some misery, some adversity, some tragedy, could you experience compassion? Could you actually cultivate compassion? Yeah. Will says yes. Sure. It doesn't need to be compassion for someone who's not there, but this is an image. Could you cultivate mm, Kathy? Hello, Kathy. <laughs> She's watching somebody else. They're coming in. Um, could you cultivate compassion while reading a novel? Definitely, yeah. So whether it's, and, and you know it's a novel. Nobody pulled a fast one on you. You know it's a novel, but, and so you know everybody there doesn't exist anywhere at all, period. But could you cultivate while reading a novel, while watching a movie? And the answer is yes, for sure. Definitely, yes. So Daniela, what's happening there? Are they, that was only a couple of people. I see a, a, cr a crowd out there. I suppose they'll, just, they'll be here when they come. I was under the impression, what? Yeah, um, sure. Normally they come up here and make it really obvious. But sure, if you would. Yeah. Let them know that, I mean, I was assuming 7.15, it's now 7.21. What's that? You can if you like. Sure. Uh, so I'm going to keep this for, no, I have that for the time. So there's that. What's that? Um, we can maybe have one more question until they come, if there is a question. So up to Sandra. Yes. And maybe you can edit a little bit just so we don't have junk in the... Re Danny? 
maybe we can edit just a little bit so we don't have junk in the uh, recording program. I have a question regarding awareness awareness as well. Oh, good, yeah. Um, when I apply first emptiness and then awareness of awareness, I have the feeling that I, ha I have an open feeling of my awareness, but I don't have the same sensations when I do awareness of awareness just straight. Straight, understood. So mm -hmm. I would like to know if 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 I'm doing well or it's I'm doing something wrong or it's uh, that's supposed to happen or your description is a bit general so and I want to give a meaningful response uh, so what I understand from what you've just said is when you're really practice engaging in the vipassana practice really seeking to fathom to experience to taste the empty nature of your own awareness there's one type of experience that arises from that as opposed to simply as the Tibetans say, without investigating or ana analyzing, simply being aware of being aware and just resting there. That those are two quite distinct experiences. Did I understand correctly? Um, well, it's, it's more like the sensation, like, yeah, yeah, like when I'm applying emptiness, it, the awareness of awareness just is it's just different. It's more open. When more open than realizing emptiness of awareness? No. <laughs> No, no, it's no, it's similar. Yeah, but I don't have the same sensations when I do just awareness of awareness straight. Yeah, the so. you know remember just first of all I sympathize. It's it's hard to find the words. It really is because this is so subtle, and so not intan. It is so intangible. If I say banana or chocolate or something, okay, we can wrap our minds around that very easily. But when we're going into the realm of awareness. And then the emptiness of awareness. We still have to use ordinary, in this case, ordinary English. We don't have some special esoteric terminology because we're still using ordinary words. Emptiness, awareness. Emptiness is a very common term and so forth. But the answer, I think the general answer to your, to your comment is that yes, the experiences of awareness of awareness and the experience of the emptiness of inherent nature of awareness are definitely different. Definitely different. The, the first one is, it's, it's a nice term in, in Tibetan, jokom. The, when you're practicing shamatha of any sort, it's simply jokom. It's simply a placing of your awareness upon the object, whatever you're attending to. In this case, it's simply awareness descending in its own place and being aware of what's already happening, being aware. That's it. But it's just a placing, you know? Likewise, if I were visualizing a Buddha image, I would simply place my mind, place my awareness, upon it, and I would be satisfied with that. I wouldn't be investigating anything like that. I will take a little break. Uh, Tracy? They're coming, yep. I see, yeah, they're gradually converging. So, but it's simply a placement. It doesn't entail investigation, analysis, probing, any of that kind of business. Just like right now, I just I simply place my awareness upon your face, and I know what I'm looking at, or you know, just front part of your body. I, it's perfectly clear. We've met many times now. You're very familiar to me, and so I'm satisfied. I don't need to go any further. And so now I can just be focusing on Sandra. And that's enough. But then, if I want to now shift it into high gear, now they're really coming, and say, all right, but now what is the nature of Sandra? Is she the front part of her body? Is she her, her body? Is she her face? Is she her mind? Does she have a body and mind? Now I'm starting to probe in. And then that not finding, that not finding, not finding a target that is really there from your own side, that is the target, that is the reference of the label Sandra. And then there's, it's qualitatively very different. 
because you are manifestly appearing to me. You have, you have shape, you have color, and so forth and so on, many qualities that I can attend to. Whereas when I'm seeking out the sandras that exist from our own side by our own nature, I'm coming with a not finding. And a finding of not finding, a finding of unfindability. That's knowing. That's not just finding. Oh, where are my keys? I can't find them. That's not it. It's knowing the unfindability, knowing there is nothing to be found. And likewise for awareness of awareness. When you're probing right into its nature, this awareness that is self-defining has its own qualities, its own boundaries, its own distinctions between awareness and not awareness. And you're looking for that nuclear core of your awareness and then not finding it. You don't suddenly go unconscious, clearly. You're still aware, but you're aware of an emptiness. And that's the simultaneous experience of emptiness and luminosity. Because you're still aware of being aware. That doesn't stop. But you're aware of the emptiness of the inherent nature of awareness. So that's why, especially oh, in multiple traditions, but one of them being the Mahamudra tradition, came up a lot in that first yoga of single-pointedness, is the big theme there for the union Shamatha Vipassana was realization of, called Tibetan, Tongsel, Tongsel, emptiness and luminosity, simultaneously and non-dually. But it's not just the emptiness of the substrate, it's the emptiness of inherent nature. And that what's, that's what really cuts to the root of samsara. Because when you realize that and then you turn your awareness outwards, then the emptiness of all phenomena, all appearances, all objects of the mind, follows pretty readily. Okay? Nice grand finale of a question. Very good. <laughs>